Welcome to the public morality. Last week, the Biden administration hosted the Summit for Democracy, a virtual summit to renew democracy at home and confront autocracies abroad. The summit addressed three overriding themes, defending against authoritarianism, fighting corruption, and advancing respect for human rights. Even if one has been under a rock for the last decade, it would be hard to miss the ironic feature of the themes provided by this year's summit as it pertains to America's democratic Republican form of government. To discuss the Democracy Summit, I'm joined by Susan Cork. Cork is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Center located in Montgomery, Alabama. Susan Cork, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much for having me, Byron. I'm thrilled to be here. Let's begin this discussion by, by qualifying our terms. How are you defining American democracy? Um, sure. I, American democracy, you know, is of course based on the expectation of participation of the people. Um, the three branches of government, um, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary that act as counterbalances on each other, um, and a belief in the uh, fundamental rights of every citizen. Now, oftentimes, and I'm thinking specifically about the, um, the, the last war in Iraq, democracy uh, became conflated with voting. How do you see that? How do you see that? So I, in my career, I've spent the last 20 years um, focused on defending and advancing um, democracy around the world, not just in the United States. Um, and I found that too often um, democracy and, and elections are conflated. And of course, elections, um, you know, America, I should have said this in my opening, you know, is an electoral democracy, which means, you know, we vote to elect our leaders. Um, and, you know, the preservation of a free and fair vote is fundamental to a democracy. Um, but as I've found in countries where authoritarianism has been on, on the rise, there's an over-focus on the day of the election itself. And even very authoritarian democracies can run a clean election. But what I like to talk about is the whole, the, the larger context in which elections occur, um, whether there's a free and fair press that's allowed to um, discuss the pros and cons of different candidates so that we have a well-informed electorate. Um, are the election laws um, fair and enabling everybody the same access to the vote, um, you know, which is something that's being contested right now in our country um, and is one of the areas that our democracy is under strain. Um, so the uh, kind of the whole environment of fundamental freedoms of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, um, freedom of assembly, uh, you need to be, we need to be mindful that the whole environment is conducive to a free and fair election. It's not just about the day itself. Um, lots of, uh, well, there's, a, there's a number of democratic indexes um, and, and that lead people to believe 
American democracy is in decline. You, you, you've alluded to a couple things, but are, are, is American democracy in decline in your view? It's in some trouble, I would say. Um, and that's part of why I shifted my career as well. I'd focused on um, democracy abroad and, you know, kind of in simple terms, I'd sort of followed the, the shift of authoritarianism westward. And when Donald Trump was elected president, I knew we were in for some dark days ahead. Um, I think, you know, having focused on countries abroad, I, I hadn't realized just how vulnerable uh, American democracy was, that citizens were losing trust in our institutions, um, that the false narrative that Trump put forward, you know, undermining Americans' trust in the media, calling it fake news, um, the rise of mis and disinformation. I, I was kind of stunned to see how vulnerable our democracy could be. And then the really frightening part for me was the, the uh, defining people as enemies. That, that's where you see when you the otherization, the toxic identity politics, which is, you know, Donald Trump rode his way into office and was consistent in his time in office of using divisive partisan identity, uh, racial politics, anti-Semitic dog whistles. His whole presidency was based on trying to divide the American electorate. And when that kind of hate and extremism is coming down from the top, I've seen it in many different countries and that you know, I, the chill of fear I felt that that creates the sense of impunity. And we saw the rise and influence of the hate and extremist groups. They saw this as a call to action. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very afraid. I, I'm also hopeful or I wouldn't be in this work, but I'm, I'm afraid. Um, and it's time for all of us to get to work. Could, could I mean, based on your last answer, could we... Uh, could once uh, posit that the strength of a democracy is in direct correlation with the confidence that the people have in it? I mean, it's, it's certainly a very important part. And again, I need to, you know, the responsibility of citizens. So it's, um, you know, it's a two-way relationship between in a democracy, which means that uh, you know, people have great power. There's also a responsibility for people to seek out truthful information and demand it out of uh, their government, hold the government accountable, uh, you know, stand up for their freedoms, uh, ask for free and fair elections. Um, so it's, you know, it's sort of a, a two-way contract. This trust, is, it's not a one-way trust. It's um, you know, establishing the social contract and holding the government accountable to meet our needs and expectations. Um, oh, 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 for some time now, I think more than many of us would, would care to uh, acknowledge, you know, the, the Democratic Index compiled, at least by the Economist Intelligence Unit, mm -hmm. has the United States consistently languishing as a flawed democracy? Um, Given that, um, is the United States the best messenger to host uh, uh, a democracy summit? Well, um, 
I mean, I have, I am glad that we are. It is something that I had been um, recommending and, and pushing for that the United States needed to put human rights and democracy back in the center of um, what it uh, strove to stand for in the world. Um, I also, I sort of, um, you know, having worked on democracy abroad for many years and, you know, trying to have conversations with other countries, there was always this sense of asymmetry as if the United States was lecturing other countries and so countries were looking for hypocrisy. So in a way it's how the United States approaches this moment because I would say democracies by their definition are not perfect. It's a process, it's not an end state. Um, so if the United States can approach this moment with humility and show that you know, to be a, a big um, superpower, uh, a democracy, but being willing to say to other countries, look, we we're experiencing setbacks. We'd like to learn from all of you. This is a process we're all going through and we all should be holding each other accountable. Um, I think that if there's humility and transparency, that's, that's pretty powerful. Um, I would also say too, for the human rights activists that I've worked with around the world, America standing for democracy is incredibly important to them. Um, I've done a lot of work in Belarus, for example, it's a very closed off society. And the fact that uh, the United States and countries of Europe are paying attention to what's happening within, that is where it's so repressed and uh, the dictator Lukashenko is cracking down with everything he has. It matters that the United States stands for democracy. Um, so again, I don't think America has to be a perfect democracy, but it has to show that it's trying and that it uh, understands that it has work to do. No I, no, no, I was just thinking because let's say if this summer were held, oh, I don't know, let's say 1989, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm -hmm. I think we'd have a very different reaction than the one that we're having in 2021 versus America hosting such, such, such a summit. Yeah, I mean, uh, 1989 was a time of great excitement and possibility. Um, you know, I was, I was in high school at the time, but, you know, I know a lot of- Don't rub it in, Susan. Don't rub, <laughs> rub it in. <laughs> uh, but that, you know, that was very formative for me that that's when I was learning about democracy and feeling like it mattered, you know, each of our participation, you know, in the countries like Czechoslovakia and, uh, you know, the- velvet divorce over there between Czech Republic and Slovakia. And, you know, I, I now know a lot of the young student leaders who brought their country to democracy. So that time was very powerful in terms of thinking that, uh, you know, young people mattered and, uh, you know, standing up for freedom and democracy mattered. Um, but it matters just as much now when we're under attack, you know, it's not just enough to kind of ride the excitement um, you know, it also matters to be there for the hard times. I would also say, you know, in that excitement, I think the, the world and the United States did not pay attention to a key lesson is that democracy needs tending and nurturing. It's not just, um, you know, as Fukuyama said around that time, end of history, um, democracy is achieved. It's not a triumphant, we've achieved democracy. Democracy 
is something that requires work. It requires, it's a participatory game. Um, and we took our eyes off the ball at the same time that there was a lot of cracks um, in democracy. There is rising inequality. Um, democracy was failing to deliver for many people. Um, and then, you know, I started, you know, with the um, financial crisis in mid 2000s and then the rising refugee crisis. That's where you really saw this acceleration of, um, you know, uh, many, many millions of people feeling like democracy hadn't delivered for them. And so um, this is a real wake up call that if we want people to believe in and fight for democracy, we have to understand how it did not deliver for a lot of people. We have to show that democracy can work. Now, I mean, and in fairness to the United States, historically, there's always been a gap mm -hmm. between the United States' verbal acknowledgement of democratic virtues and its practices. Mm -hmm. um, we're never as, no one is as moral as the ideals they hold. Uh, but January 6th, at least in my view, gives the notion of hosting a summit on democracy in the same year of January 6th. Let's just say it's ironic. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard that argument. My, some of my colleagues have made that same argument, too, of, of the irony of it. Um, again, I really think it's how the United States uses the moment. We are in trouble. January 6th was a shocking, terrifying low that we would, our, the, our capital was overtaken by people who sought to overturn the results of a free election, that they were there with guns, they had been planning. Um, there's, I, I can't imagine anything worse. Um, so again, it depends if we are approaching this with humility. We've never needed help more um, because as you know, at SPLC, one thing that we, you know, we've been tracking and raising the alarms on many of this for decades. Um, and particularly in the um, years in the lead up to Trump, the incredible rise of hate and extremist groups. We'd also been, you know, for the past 30 years, um, alerting government to the extremism that exists within our military, within our law enforcement. This is structural racism from top to bottom. And you also, that's another factor for why January 6th happened. Um, it, it happened because the intelligence agencies failed to take it seriously enough. The law enforcement failed to take it seriously enough. These people weren't organizing secretly. They were open, openly organizing and planning the attack on the Capitol. Um, so it's a real failure of our system. So whether it's ironic or and means that we shouldn't do it, or this is a call to action because we are on a precipice, I, I still think it's worth having it because we need, we really need a, an infusion of global energy if uh, democracy is going to kind of win against the forces of authoritarianism and um, if we don't take this moment and we don't try to rebuild and defend and um, innovate so that we are, uh, you know, really meeting the new challenges that are arising, I, I see very dark times ahead. So whether it's ironic or not, I, I still think it's necessary. <laughs> I, 
I mean, our, our conversation about democracy summit, but I want to put a, a, a pin. I want to come back to something you just said because I think it's important that um, given the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center, you you said that that some of our officials didn't take it seriously. Um, the alarms. It seems to me, at least in, through my lens, they took very seriously, you know, the protests of the pending protests. Um, during the previous summer of, of those involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, why the difference? Why, why is protest in the streets taken very seriously, in my view, and yet sort of, my words, cavalierly a threat of uh, stopping the government, the federal government from functioning? I mean, there, you know, America has not overcome its history of racism. There is white supremacy built into our system. Um, and that unfortunately explains a lot of the, um, you know, overzealous, overpreparedness with the Black Lives Matter protests and the blindness to the threat that is, you know, as the director of the FBI has said, the greatest threat to our nation right now is, you know, the this white supremacist violence, those who seek a violent overthrow of our country through essentially a civil war. Um, but there's two very different visions of America right now. Um, you know, one that is democratic and, you know, seeks an inclusive democracy and another part that seeks, uh, you know, essentially a, a white ethno state. And that is a very, very frightening. Um, that people want to re, you know, return America to uh, re, have uh, American regression back to some of the darkest times in our history. It's, um, there's, there's no way to say it any other way. Um, you, you, you alluded to a previous answer, uh, in, the, in your previous answer, I should say. Mm -hmm. But back in 1963, President Kennedy famously noted in Berlin you know, um, if freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect, but we've never had a, a put up a wall to keep our people in to, to prevent them from leaving us. Yeah, now we the have. Fact, <laughs> right. The, yeah. Um, the fact is, 58 years after Kennedy uttered those words, um, touting the virtues of democratic rule, there seems to be a rise of authoritarian regimes. Mm -hmm. How do, you, how do you account for that? Um, I mean, populist, populism in itself isn't bad, but it's the ethno-populism. And when people are um, feel that they are not doing as well as they would like, um, the, the ethno-populism that has accompanied a lot of the uh, kind of authoritarians on the rise has been to make uh, very easy answers, giving people somebody to blame. The, the enemy is the other. The enemy is the immigrants who are, who are coming into your country who want to take your jobs. Um, you know, vote for me and I will take care of the, the enemy for you. Um, uh, you know, authoritarians provide very simple answers to complex problems. And, uh, you know, the... Those for inclusive democracy, it's a more contextualized, um, much more difficult answer. Um, so, you know, it's it's been, you know, from a messaging standpoint, uh, eth ethno-populists um, and the authoritarianism has 
kind of weaponized the information system too. I mean, you know, with Fox News and the whole far right ecosystem, it's designed to kind of create this this bubble um, of defining who is um, who is the enemy, who is the other, and uh, having this kind of gathering around the troops. So, you know, an amazing thing that we've been tracking that has kind of changed the way we do business in my department at Southern Poverty Law Center. The we've been tracking the hate and extremist groups for decades. Um, and counting the number, but we found that the barometer of hate and extremism, that's only one measure, right? Because people with the rise of the internet and people able to um, you know, gather and mobilize, make money, um, plan, um, intersect with different ideologies. Being a card-carrying member of a hate group doesn't uh, matter as much anymore. It's become much more diffuse um, and in the past two years um, with the pandemic, um, with uh, Trump stoking um, the anti-masking, anti-vaxxing, um, hate and extremism, and then the big lie of the stolen election, what had been all these disparate elements of um, kind of hate and extremism and different ideologies, they did coalesce into more or less this social movement that we call kind of the hard, hard anti-democratic right um, that, you know, favors authoritarianism over democracy. So that, so you had all these groups that had not been coordinated before coalescing around these same narratives that is in itself anti-democratic and authoritarianism. No, we've had uh, NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat several times mm -hmm. on, on the broadcast. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments that Professor Ben-Ghiat makes is that what you have now is uh, authoritarianism within in America within the construct of democratic rule so that it's possible to still maintain the facade of democratic rule, but the authoritarianism can just sort of hollow it out. How do you see it similar? I, I don't know. I would say that the United States is there yet, but I would say um, what she's described and what you're describing is what we've assessed in other countries, that authoritarianism doesn't usually happen at the end of the gun or with a coup, that it is a slow process where, um, you know, I've uh, been involved with projects with the Brookings Institute that had written a book called The Authoritarian Toolkit. And then uh, I was a co-author of uh, the Democracy Playbook that you know, gives tools for how to fight back against that. Um, yeah, the, what the authoritarian leader seeks to do is to essentially hollow out a democracy. Um, they may come um, to lead by democratic means, a free and fair election. And then once they're in power, they seek to hold on to it. So they start to change the laws to make it so that they can remain in power. They go after the free media and call the media the enemy. Um, in other countries like Hungary, they effectively take over the independent media. So people are no longer able to um, get information to stay informed. Um, they make it impossible for opposition politicians to, to have a fair shot um, in an election. Then they start to crack down on non-governmental organizations in places like Russia and Hungary 
they start making those who are fighting for civil rights the enemy. And um, in Russia there and Hungary, there's laws about calling them foreign agents for any organizations receiving money or support from other countries. Um, so yeah, it's systematic and slow. It doesn't all happen at once. And all of a sudden, you know, as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, you can still have an election, right? Because they've already changed the laws. They've already um, gotten rid of uh, independent media. They've already made it very difficult for civil society to operate. Um, and then they can have an election and they can get elected, but it's no longer what one thinks about in terms of a participatory inclusive democracy. Um, having seen a lot of countries where there's much less space and um, and they don't have a tradition of democracy uh, that was, you know, where they were much weaker democracies or just, you know, starting to be democracies. It was much easier to unravel. Here, I would say in the United States, I'm not, I'm not at a totally pessimistic point yet. I, we're not at a an authoritarian state. The, the Biden administration hopefully can you know, correct some of the legacy of the Trump administration. We do have a vibrant civil society and the ability to rally together. We still have, um, even though trust in media has gone down somewhat, we do have you know, vi incredibly vibrant free press. Um, our three branches of government, even though you know there's lots to criticize there, we do still have um, checks and balances within our system. Uh, which is not to say that you know the authoritarian, the slide towards authoritarianism could certainly continue, um, but we do still have a lot of room to fight back and um, use every tool at our disposal to be protecting our democracy. You know, one, one, one of my contingents has been that, that America's civic virtue based on the Declaration of Independence is liberty and equality. Those, those are like the central pillars of our civic mm -hmm. virtue, in my view. Um, but there's also been a, a silent partner um, in my also paradox. And that sort of rolled unabated. I remember when I was working on my book on 1963, I, I interviewed a man named Jack O'Dell, who had worked with Martin Luther King. And when I was when I was interviewing Jack, he said that the problem they, the civil rights movement, had with Kennedy was that President Kennedy could go to Berlin and say he was a Berliner, hence ich bin Berliner. Mm -hmm. But there was nowhere in America he would ever go and say that he was a Negro, in spite of the democratic problems uh, in this country. And my point being is, par as paradox as paradox lingers. Um, does that cast a shadow anytime America touts the virtues of democracy? I mean, it is certainly, you know, our hard history that we need to grapple with. You know, one of, one of the issues that we are, remain very engaged in is, um, you know, Confederate, you know, the lost cause Confederacy, that, that continues to be a major strain within this um, anti-democratic right, which, you know, essentially has become the mainstream Republican party. But um, the, the two Americas are essentially one that is looking to the past, the, the, the past where there was slavery and wanting to go back to 
a system of segregation. That's essentially the, uh, you know, the white supremacists that are, um, you know, the far right of the Republican Party. They're essentially trying to take us back into that history. We have, we have to come together as a country to uh, around exactly what you said, liberty and equality for all. Um, you know, in, in some ways, we're a very young democracy. It only goes back to the 60s when we had full, you know, civil rights advances and the ability for African Americans and, you know, all people of color and women to be fully participatory in our system. So in some ways, we're a very young democracy, if you think of it in terms of um, full participation of, of the people. Um, so yeah, I mean, until America comes back together on one vision of a inclusive democracy where there's liberty and equality for all, um, we're, we're going to be uh, fighting a hard fight for many years. You know, I, I was struck as, as um, I knew we knew we were gonna have you on the broadcast. Mm -hmm. I went back and listened to an interview that I had like what, six years ago with a former colleague of yours, Mark Potop. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by that conversation because we were talking about the rise of right-wing extremist groups back then. Yeah. And most of the conversation you and I are having right now in relation to those groups weren't even on his radar screen. I mean, there's there's almost I there's almost a normalization. Like you could be sympathetic to the ideas of QAnon and be elected to Congress. I, I did that just wasn't even conceivable when I was speaking with Mark several years ago. I mean, I think that's the one of the scariest trends is the this mainstreaming of this white supremacist ideology, all, what ideology, um, the great replacement theory that this is the, you know, five or six years ago, and even four years ago, I'd say when we had Unite the Right in Charlottesville, there was um, this sense of collective shock. I think you've you've written about the we need to bring back collective shame. Um, you know that it was so shocking to see people mm -hmm. marching in Charlottesville with with tiki torches, and and since then, um, the the tactics of the far right have have shifted, and they have been infiltrating the the main stream of uh, the Republican Party. So now we essentially have the Republican Party representing an anti-democratic, you know, one of our two major parties in America represents anti-democracy, that they are against the vision of liberty and equality for all and are fighting to suppress the vote. They are fighting to roll back uh, abortion and um, you know, various rights. So, you know, we are in a, in a situation where no, this is not the fringe anymore. This is the Republican party. And that makes it much harder to fight because there is an entrenchment of this white supremacist ideology that is part of the Republican party. Now they have not distanced themselves from it. They have not been calling for accountability for January 6th. They have not held accountable members, elected members of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene and um, uh, Lauren Warburg and, and you know, many, many others, Matt Gates, 
you know, the, the agitators within their party who are defending the January 6th. And, you know, as we will find out, we're probably more complicit than we even know. Um, uh, at the risk of uh, dating myself, since you I already realized you were in high school when all this stuff happened. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, that means I'm, I'm about to reference the fall of the Berlin Wall again. So I'm just, mm -hmm. just, you, you've, been, you, you've been duly warned. Um, did the fall of the Berlin Wall also reveal cracks in a in the democratic america's democratic republican form of government in that the cold war in my view these are my words sort of served as a, a bipartisan harness and 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 without the so-called evil empire that our democracy has become more cannibalistic because you mentioned how we've othered our own people and, mm -hmm. and i wonder how, how 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 you saw that um, that's a really interesting question. Although I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that Russia's become less evil. <laughs> right, so, okay. Fair. Um, I mean, I take, I take the point. <laughs> in fact, kind of the the rise of Putinism has, um, you know, brought is fueling the the very problem we have today. Um, and I would say too, you know, it didn't go away in Germany too. You know, that was one of the uh, I, I worked in Germany looking at the rise of anti-Semitism and extremism in Germany back in um, 2015 when the, the refugee crisis was, um, you know, really reaching a, a, a peak. And, um, you know, in Germany, it was stunning to them to realize that anti-Semitism was on the rise, you know, so as a in comparison to America, where we have never kind of come around this like shared identity that our history of slavery is something that we need to move away from and make sure never happens again, that we need to end racism once and for all. In Germany, there had been this the identity in, in post-World War II um, was that, you know, never again, that the horrors of Hitler and World War II and um, that, 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 that could never happen again. So that since then, Germany's identity has been very much focused around um, trying to be a, a leader in the world in terms of democracy, really um, being peaceful, not allowing its military to build up. So it was very shocking to them um, that there was this, this rise of this far, far right ideology and resurgence of anti-Semitism um, anti-immigrant. So it can, you know, it can happen anywhere, I guess. And it, it, in a way, you know, it didn't, never went away in Germany, 20% of the population never really reformed their beliefs. And same is probably true in America. And, you know, it, the effectiveness of corralling grievances around a shared narrative and, giving somebody something to blame, you know, is I, I, I don't understand it fully why, why it's so compelling, why people would be um, willing to be drawn down that, that path. It, it's still, it's shocking to me, so I can't fully explain it, but I, I do see it and name it and feel, you know, compelled to do what I can. 
Well, to, following up on that, I mean, whether we start, whenever we start the, 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 the democratic narrative in America, whether it's 1776, 1865, 1920, or as you alluded, 1965, whenever we started, do you feel as though this country is experiencing democratic fatigue? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think we're just experiencing fatigue. Um, you know, I, I think the past year and a half, the per, uh, pandemic, coronavirus, you know, 800,000 people dying, the Trump years, you know, what, whatever side of it you were on were just exhausting. Um, and, you know, it, it exposed some really ugly things about America that um, are, are hard to see. And, um, you know, going back to the uh, point that, you know, I know you've written about is the idea of collective shame. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's shameful and, and it's, it's hard for people to, to wrap their heads around that and, and figure out what to do about it. It's, um, you know, people are, are exhausted. Um, and it's with our democracy, it's with things being so hard, it's with the, you know, the forces, it's exhausting that there's people who don't want to get vaccinated and yet so many people are dying and that there's people who are saying that, that, that it's fake. Like it's, it's all exhausting. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> exhausted. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking, Thinking about the, the, the overarching themes of, of the uh, recently held Democracy Summit. Mm-hmm. And we talked about irony before uh, here in America, but I'm thinking about, you know, the defending against authoritarianism, fighting corruption. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and when you look at those sort of overarching themes, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 the, and voting. I mean, those are all things that that are currently you can make an argument that in some way are, are threatening this country. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so it's almost like, forgive me for delving into a, a biblical reference here, but it sounds like, you know, well, OK, physician, heal thyself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I get that argument. And, you know, I, but on the other hand, those are the things that threaten every country that tries to be a democracy, right? Um, And yes, there is corruption here and, you know, but we still do have shock about it. Um, And and it does anger people. Um, And I'll I'll point to to Russia, for example, where the the scale of the the corruption there and and Ukraine, for example, where I've done a lot of work, um, here there's corrupt to try to put it simply. Here there's corruption in the system, right? And and we do have um, you know our courts still work, and we do have free media that's exposing it. Um, in Russia and Ukraine, I would say. It's not that the system is corrupt. It is that the corrupt corruption is the system. Um, I remember, not, 
don't know, maybe like eight years ago, I was over in Ukraine and we were, um, I worked at Freedom House and, you know, the, one of our key areas of work was combating corruption and, and fighting to advance democracy in other countries. So we were working in Ukraine and in Ukraine, the, the system is so corrupt that there's no, there, at that point, there was no real independent media. So none of the stories of corruption had any way of getting out. Um, so we were training, we um, funded to bring in trainers to help journal, uh, young journalists and bloggers understand kind of the, the techniques in terms of how to do forensic reporting, how to, how to follow the track of corruption. Um, and for those that were involved in this program, it was very dangerous for them because um, the, the leaders in power had so much control and they had clamp down on, on any information getting out on corruption. So it was very dangerous to be in a position where they were learning how to expose corruption. And I remember asking, you know, one young journalist, I said, you know, what was finally your tipping point where you felt like um, there's too much corruption? He said, that's, that's the wrong question. He said, corruption is everything here. It's whether you get into nursery school or not. It's whether you advance to the first grade, you have to pay off the teacher. It's whether or not you have um, access to the grocery store. It's whether or not you get a college degree or not. There's a there's a price. There's corruption built into, you know, every part of the system. Um, and we, you know, even found, you know, within our our program that there was somebody who was, you know, kind of ha had a corrupt arrangement with with the police. So I so I I think it's it's the scope and scale and how embedded. It is, um, and whether there's the system and space to still root it out and hold accountable. So, that, so I'm giving those two examples just to show kind of the the scale of what corruption, where there it's rotting from top to bottom, does versus our system where there is a lot of corruption, but it's not so pervasive. Uh, I'm gonna go to. Um maybe tangibly how, how, how I think how this impacts this country. Um, it's, it was probably easier in 1948 uh, to pass the Marshall Plan that aided Western Europe than it, than it has been to address some of the economic challenges right here in America in 2021. And is that a function of, of how democracy has evolved in this country in your view? Or do you think it's we could pass those things like we did the Marshall Plan abroad? <laughs> I mean, we probably do need some. I mean, that's where I don't know if the Democracy Summit will lead to some um, major plan. Um, but I, I do think that something dramatically new, where there is this huge investment to reinvigorate. Um, not just our individual democracies, but at the collective level. Um, one thing I've talked about a fair amount is how technology has forever changed the practice of democracy, as has you know financing. You know these uh, of the the far right that I've been talking about. You know they're making a lot of money off this too. There's a lot of money in you know promoting these awful racist theories. They're um, using dark money and crypto. So, um, you know, the, the practice of democracy has also changed. Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? <laughs> <laughs> I got off track there a little bit, I think. 
<laughs> well, if, if it's any consolation, I I I I, 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 get, I get off track all the time. But what I was asking you, what I was what I, what I was asking you was that in '48 we passed the Marshall Plan. Yes. And that it's and, and that in spite of some of the economic challenges we have now, that it's probably to do something similar domestically would 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 be an insurmountable task. And I'm wondering, is that the fact that it would be harder if you if you if you believe it would be harder, if it would, would it be one of the reasons is because our decline in the trust of our democratic institutions to do something bold like that. Yeah, um, yeah, it would be much harder. I mean, we are in a very polarized country right now. The Republican and Democratic parties, and you know, those of us who are one side or the other, there, there's not a lot of common ground. And you know, Congress for many years has struggled to. Um, get big, big things done. Um, you know, another thing too, and this is, this I've seen is very different from America versus Europe is we have a very sense of rugged sense of individualism here, this kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, but yeah, if we go back, you know, 50, 60 years, and you look at the levels of taxation, you look at um, uh, the, the pay for CEOs of companies, the there was not this, um, the, the inequity divide was, was not as great as it is now. There was this, um, you know, willingness to fund bigger projects and, and to come together around the, the shared sense of, of patriotism, um, you know, human rights as, as a moral necessity. And I do think um, we've lost that to some extent or that it has been manipulated to have people having different meanings of, of what that looks like. Um, I do think that we have lost this kind of collective sense of, of generosity and, and willingness. You know, the, by definition, otherization politics and defining people as the enemy, meaning that those people are, you know, don't deserve the, the fruits of the democracy. So it, it's exclusionary politics that this group is the favored group and this group should receive support and help and the full um, functioning of the, of the government and our institutions and this other group should not benefit. Um, and that's why it's so hard right now. There's two very different visions of America and it you know, plays out in our Congress. But when you mentioned, when you mentioned the, the notion of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, I, I, I'm reminded of something that, that Martin Luther King said. When someone says everyone should pull themselves up by their bootstraps, it assumes that everyone has shoes. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm that I'm really struck by it, and, and I can't rationalize. One of the towering beliefs that we've held is that this notion of a peaceful transfer of power. January 6th ended that 234-year reign. And I'm, I'm wondering, it seems, at least it seems to me, that everyone is not as upset or, or about that as I feel they should be. So, Susan, help me out why I'm feeling bad that everyone else is not feeling bad by this 234 years of peaceful transfer of power has come to an end. <laughs> well, I mean, that is 
very stunning and, you know, is one of the important, most important things is the peaceful transfer of power and, you know, accepting the legitimacy of your opponent um, and being willing to uh, step aside that, I mean, the, uh, it's would have been inconceivable uh, and I think it was inconceivable for many that there, as we're learning more and more through the you know January sixth select committee that's investigating um, the planning and the complicity from actual Trump administration officials, probably leading up to Trump himself, um, that there was a deliberate attempt to plan against a peaceful transfer of power and to believe a blatant lie of the stolen election. I mean, I think it's something like, well, the majority of Americans believe that Biden is the legitimate president. Seven, at least 70% of Republicans believe the big lie put forward by Trump that uh, the election was stolen from him. Um, and that's a real problem. It's a real problem. And it's, you know, we, that, that can never happen again. I mean, if Trump had been elected for another term, um, we would be having a very different conversation right now. On, on, on that dire note, uh, Susan Cork, I want to thank you uh, for, for joining me today on the public rally. We, 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 we've been honored um, to, to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I, I was pleased to be here. And I will end by just saying I am optimistic and I urge everybody to um, do your part, um, act to now to defend our democracy. So thank you so much, Byron and Michael and to the public morality. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook, as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>